Hey, welcome uh, to The Revealing. This is Pastor Frank at One Baptist Church here in Jacksonville. Uh, we hope uh, everybody is uh, staying safe and uh, enjoying their time with family at home. Uh, we know we're living through a, a, a pretty rough time, but uh, hopefully we can take this time and just uh, be able to uh, just uh, reflect on some things and, and be able to uh, remember uh, that uh, time of family is important. And uh, although, uh, you know, we're not able to get out and about, uh, being able to stay home and uh, be able to hang out uh, with our friends and family uh, is, a, is an awesome time as well. Uh, obviously, with everything that's going on, uh, we have uh, halted our recordings of The Revealing uh, and, uh, uh, you know, for the obvious reasons of staying safe. Uh, so what we thought we would do uh, for uh, the uh, uh, upcoming weeks is uh, maybe give you some... Uh, uh, some excerpts of some of our preaching that we do here at One Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Uh, what we're going to do instead of uh, uh, bringing you uh, the revealing crew, uh, we're going to take some weeks off here uh, for uh, the foreseeable future and uh, just uh, play some recordings that we've done uh, at our church uh, in One Baptist Jacks. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy those things. Uh, again, uh, stay safe, and uh, the Revealing crew will be coming back at you live here soon. Uh, so we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. All right, so I would like to, a uh, good evening, by the way, if I <clears throat> haven't seen you yet. I would like to remind us why we are studying church history, because this evening we have officially moved into our study of this, this first uh, period of church history known as the Ephesus period. If you remember a few weeks ago, I gave you in one of our notes uh, the, the seven church periods and the names and the dates and the meanings and all that. Uh, but but I, I want to remind you, as we've done probably every, every three or four weeks, I, I feel like I bring you back to these two passages quite often, and it's because I need to be reminded of these things. And so I hope that you just kind of remember why we're doing this. And the first is, of course, uh, Job chapter 8, uh, in verses 8 through 10, we see where God tells us, uh, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age. And prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. We have that one, I think. Uh, for verse 9, for we are but of yesterday and know nothing because our days upon earth are a shadow. And, and I'm just going to stop right there uh, before we read verse 10. Because there in verse 9, he's telling us, listen, if we just kind of rely on our own resources, uh, kind of the book ends of our life, those two dates that are uh, on either side of that hyphen uh, on our tombstone. Uh, we cannot, will not um, be able to uh, gather the information just in, in our time, the things that God has actually laid out in his word. So we are, are but a shadow. Uh, we are but of yesterday, he says. So, he says, verse 10, shall not they, uh, the former, uh, the, the, the fathers of the former age, shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words and I want us to grab onto these four words, these last four words of, of these verses here, out of their hearts. And I hope that uh, in the last three months that we have been uh, embarking on this journey uh, tonight and then over the next several months as we continue it. Man, I do hope that this is getting into our hearts. Uh, it really has mine. Uh, not just learning like church history, right? Like what part of history is in our hearts, really? Like that's just like, it's content, it's knowledge, it's information, 
it's you know dates and, and people and places and things and, and yeah we'll go through all of that but we have a different kind of a textbook than, than you would find in a college course yeah. and, right. and it's a book that is quick and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword yeah. and it pierces even to the divided asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow the sermon the thoughts and intents of the heart and so, man, let this get into out of their hearts, out of the fathers and the former age, as it were, out of their hearts into ours. And as we've seen in our study, and I think you probably know the next passage I'm going to throw at you uh, there in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3 and verse 15. Uh, we've seen from that and several others in our study that God is a very patterned God. Okay, and he's very patterned. That doesn't mean that we have him. You know, wrapped around our thumb, or we've got him figured out. Mm -mm. But but he does say, that which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. And this, Ecclesiastes 3.15, is what makes Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 so powerful. And the word of God stand really in a league of its own. Because God has outlined for us in that prophetic application that we talk so much about here. He has outlined for us history before it happened. And we are standing on the other side of that, still in it, but on the other side, looking back and saying, yep, check, yep, check, yep. And, and we just go down the list and he hasn't, there hasn't been a T he hasn't crossed and an I that he hasn't dotted. And, and, and listen, I mean, I just want to take you on a very brief, like for a minute, journey through a few verses in Isaiah. Because Isaiah is, is full of, of, of promises and declarations that the Lord makes. Very, very much like this of what we're talking about. In Isaiah chapter 42, and verses 8 through 9, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another Neither my praise to graven images, and, and, and I could stop there, and we could preach on that. Man, praise the Lord. And then he goes on and says, Behold, in verse 9, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. In chapter 45, in verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, ask me of things to come. He says, sounds an awful lot like Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Inquire. He says also, uh, I think in the book of Psalms, come, let us reason together, so to speak. But he says there in, in 45, 11, ask me of things to come concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. Wow. He, he goes on also in chapter 45, a few verses later in, in verse 19. I have not spoken in secret. Now, there, the word of God, the unsearchable riches of Christ, like we cannot and will not exhaust this book, and we will not get to the very bottom of it, okay? Um, again, it's not like we have it under our thumbs, like we have mastered the book. Mm -mm. But he tells us in his book and of his book, I have not spoken in secret. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So the things that he even declared in Revelation 2 and 3 before they happened, before they happened, they were right. It was righteousness. And again, we have the honor of the privilege, the opportunity, the perspective of looking back and seeing those things take place. And wow. Uh, Isaiah also, 45 again, uh, verse 21, a couple of verses later. Who hath declared this from ancient time? 
Who hath told it from that time? Hath not I the Lord? Who can declare from ancient times? Who hath told it from that, from that time? Mm -mm. The Lord. And then uh, one more in Isaiah 46 and verse 10. I am God. And again, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. And he says, my counsel shall stand. Like, the counsel of the word of the Lord, man. It will stand the test of time and criticism and scrutiny and trial and anything and everything that can be and has been and is being thrown at it. And, and God has even tucked history away, as we've already established, in Revelation 2 and 3. So now we can do what Job 8, 8 through 10 tells us to do because we have Revelation 2 and 3. We can inquire of the former age. So, man, praise the Lord for that. And, and we have everything that we need in the word of God to do that. And so, if you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Um, we're really going to just camp on the first verse tonight. Um, we won't go that slow, typically, but we are going to be in just the first verse. I'm going to have it right there, uh, and we're going to – I'm going to have a bunch up here, and we're going to have a bunch, like, not up here. So, so get your – I hope you brought your, you know, finger, um, you know, quick page turn or whatever, or you're ready to press or whatever. But we see the first church, <clears throat> the, the Ephesus church, that, that, that Jesus uh, is essentially writing to, and John is, is seeing these things. And he says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. <clears throat> and so, as we said before, and probably beat this horse until it has said uncle in seven different languages, I want to make sure we have the, the uh, three applications established when it comes to this thing of the church of Ephesus. <clears throat> because it's super important knowing that the historical application is that this, was, uh, this is the actual church in Ephesus. Okay, this is the actual real situation is being addressed. Uh, there's a devotional or inspirational application where this church in Ephesus, though it was historically there, uh, it, it also is a type, uh, devotionally speaking, a type of church. Uh, these, these, the characteristics of this church can be found in many churches, really, throughout history. And then there's the doctrinal uh, application there and uh, the prophetic application, which is really the actual teaching of the passage, like the real teaching of that passage and we get that from revelation chapter 1 verse 10 and revelation chapter 1 and verse 19 where we see where john was in reference to what he was writing the things which has which thou hast seen or has been are and shall be and this is that doctrine application it represents the the period of church history approximately from 90 to 200 a.d and so before we get to um the, uh, the, the, the church of Ephesus, I want to talk to you about the city of Ephesus real quick. Some of us may know a little bit about that. Some of us may not. Some of us may not even care. And, and that's all good. But uh, when you think of Ephesus, I want you to, to understand that Ephesus was, man, it, it, it was like the hub of, of Asia Minor. And when we say Asia Minor, like, like to, to picture Asia and then that, that um, western kind of pocket there, so to speak, uh, all, all of these seven churches there, really, along that coast, so to speak, are, are there. You just type in, you Google uh, Asia Minor map, 
um, and you'll see Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Uh, you'll see in that general area, Antioch and Alexandria. You'll see all these different places you see in the Bible. And so, uh, man, this was an incredibly beautiful city, the city of Ephesus, really the largest uh, metrop uh, metropolis, excuse me, in Asia Minor. Um, and and there was, it's right there in the pocket, uh, right at a sea uh, uh, port that was really just the, the hub of commerce and import and export, um, really the, the hub of the banking industry, uh, known as the marketplace of Asia. I mean, this was almost like New York City. On a smaller scale, of course, but kind of like that idea and that that um, type of a, a location or type of a, a place. Um, it was unbelievable, but it was also unbelievably wicked. Ephesus was. Uh, it, it was best known uh, for uh, one of the ancient seven or seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. Uh, you may have heard about that or, or recall some of that either from history or from, from, from Bible studies around here. Uh, but, man, the Temple of Diana, uh, not only was it and because it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, it was a huge tourist attraction. And, and this Temple of Diana, Diana being the female goddess of fertility, and um, you Google image – Temple of Diana or Diana goddess, and, and you'll see why she was the, the female goddess of fertility. Uh, but, but in this temple, at any given time, you, you walk into that, that thing, and you would, you would encounter probably hundreds of temple prostitutes that, that were utilized in, in their, quote, worship and rituals. Of, of, of this, this goddess of fertility. It got so popular, really, that in Acts chapter 19 and verse 27, we see uh, the temple of the great goddess Diana that had infiltrated all of Asia and the world. And I would argue <laughs> that is in part why and how we, in our culture, are so inundated and so obsessed as a culture with sex. I mean, it sells like nothing else, man. And so in the midst of this wicked city, though, there was a church, the church in Ephesus. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. I want to read a brief passage here just to kind of give you a glimpse of what this church was about. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Here we are. Acts 20, 17. And from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all, at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, verse 24, 
But none of these things move me. Okay? And, and I really, friend, listen, I really want you to grab onto this next, uh, the next clause in this sentence. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. And, and we're going to kind of make a full circle around that statement by the end here. So, so don't forget that. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, Paul tells these leaders. So that I, why? So that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. And I'm hoping that uh, our, our study on this on Sunday morning several weeks back, maybe some of that might be coming back to your memory. Uh, but in verse 27, he says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And so listen, the point is, God did some amazing things through Paul and, and the pastors of that church and, and, and in Ephesus as a result. But Revelation 2, 1 says the letter is written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So who is this angel of the church of Ephesus? Okay, so um, I think a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I can't remember now, but we, we oh yeah, with Leviathan, right? We, we practiced going to the scholarly sources and seeing how reliable they are and what they, we're not gonna do that. I think I kind of made the point there, uh, but you go to commentaries and you go to scholars and what you'll typically find and I can't say this for everything and everyone, but what you'll typically find is that, uh, you know, okay, well, since the word angel means messenger, though I would say that not every angel in the Bible was a messenger, though because angel means messenger, if the commentator will go, um, then the messenger of the church is the pastor, and so he must be writing to the pastor of the church. And, and you've seen that. Was that you saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... And, and I, I was looking, I was like, okay, let me see if, what they're saying here. And like, yep, okay, so, so I, you know, your pastors can validate that for you. But, excuse me, but when, when you just hold that up to the Bible, for one, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know of anywhere in the Bible where a pastor is called an angel. Now, you may think our pastor is an angel. I don't Oh, he is, he says. An angel of death or an angel of, I don't know what, but he, no. But you just won't find it in the Bible, okay? Uh, so just to save time, well, what I would submit to you is read the Bible, and you'll see that there are angels, angelic beings, representatives that are in charge of nations, uh, that are in charge of actually individual people. Uh, Jesus, I think, in Matthew talked about those over little children. And so what is happening here is, and I, even quite possibly, any and every church through history that God sees as a true bonafide church, there very well could be an, an angelic representation over that. Um, I'm not here to, to really discuss that too much. That's kind of my thought, but that doesn't matter. But the point is what's happening here is that as is true of, of nations and as is true of people, it is true of churches and there is an angelic representation, a spirit being, an angel that is uh, in charge, if you will, over this church. That is a representation of this church. It's almost as if, from an earthly standpoint, you know, uh, 
uh, the, the president is a representation of our country. Uh, our pastor, is a as a leader, is a representation of this church, right? Um, in, in a business, in a family, like in any hierarchy organization, okay? And, and that's kind of what's happening here. So in Revelation 2.1, he, he says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, and here's what he's telling them to write in chapter 2 and verse 1. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Okay, so, so what does that mean? Look at the seven stars first, and really we just need to go back one chapter to see what the seven stars are and what the seven golden sticks or golden candlesticks are. I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but I want you to know. Revelation 120, uh, he tells us, um, as plain as day, uh, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Just look back at Revelation 120. And so the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, uh, the appearance of those churches in his presence in the third heaven, okay? Now, this should make perfect biblical sense to us, seeing that those of us that are in Christ, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, that he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So though uh, Carol and Gary and Pam and Jackie and Peyton and John and Linda are sitting here, they are also, at, because they're in Christ, they're sitting in heavenly places. So, so we, we see that from a biblical standpoint. And the one that is holding, friend, that star, those seven stars, but the, the, the Ephesus star, if you will, is none other than Jesus Christ. And so, and so he's walking uh, in the midst, Revelation 2, 1 tells us, of seven golden candlesticks. So, so what does that mean? Again, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, you should see up here in a moment. It says, The seven golden, the seven candlesticks which thou sawest, John, are the seven churches. So, so picture this with me. Jesus is holding the seven stars in his right hand, the angels, as he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Or the, those churches, which again represent seven periods of church history. And this really lends to the doctrinal application of this passage because why would Jesus be walking through just seven individual strictly historical churches up in heaven? Like, like just those seven and that's it? Like, I don't know. Like, what would be so special about those? Especially the church of Laodicea. I mean, so, like, there's something more going on here than just seven uh, physical churches. And as we said a few weeks ago, the meaning of the name of each of these churches really is an overview or a, a, an encapsulation from God's perspective of what happened <clears throat> excuse me, in the church period at that, during that time. And so uh, the, the name Ephesus means fully purposed, we talked about, fully purposed. And, and so this is a church that understood what its purpose was. A, and it was a church that was equipped to fulfill said purpose. Okay, so if we're going to appreciate that the Ephesus church and the Ephesus church period knew and was equipped for their purpose, let us ask ourselves, what, pray tell, is the real purpose of the church? What is the real purpose of the church? This is so important for us to answer because the biblical answer, and I think most of us, because we have the, the uh, 
pastor that we do and the approach to the Bible that we do and the you know all that. I think we, we get it, but I just want to make sure that again you're equipped to not just hear it from people, but actually to know where and why. But this is so important for us to answer because the Bible answer for what the real purpose of the church is, it flies in the face of 21st century Christianity, and it slaps it around. Because the purpose of the church is not to build buildings. The, the purpose of the church is not to fill buildings. The purpose of the church is not to make our country moral, no matter how much we need it. The purpose of the church is not to rally people politically. The purpose of the church is not to make this world a better place. That's not why we're here. If it was, we stink at that. The purpose of the church is not to give people a spiritual self-help nuggets uh, along the way to help them make it through the week. The purpose of the church is not to provide social and relational avenues to meet people's felt needs. The purpose of the church is not to help families be happier. None of these uh, characteristics or, or ideas uh, the, uh, of, of trendy 21st century churchianity approaches to ministry is the purpose of the church. Now, those things can happen. Those can be results or byproducts of fulfilling the purpose of the church, no doubt. But that's not what God had in mind <laughs> when he established the church and when he established the local church. And, and we know this, but let's just pretend we don't for a second. Boys and girls, there is one book in the Bible where God has revealed to us the mystery of the church. Okay, Now, it's a mystery because if you go back to the Old Testament and talk to Moses and you say, Man, Brother Moses, isn't it awesome what, what, what Jesus Christ did in, in, in grafting uh, the Jew, the Gentile, into the church and, the, and, and us being in him and him in us? Moses, first of all, is going to look at you and say, Jesus who? Number one. Number two, he's going to say, church, that this was a mystery in the Old Testament. And so that one book, as you know, that teaches us the, the purpose of the church is the book he wrote to the Ephesians. Ephesus. Right. That's interesting. And so flip with me in the book to Ephesians chapter 3 for just a moment. And in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 8, I want to just read a few verses here and there to you. Ephesians 3 and verse 8, uh, he, he picks up here and says, Unto me, so Paul, of course, is writing, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. So what we're seeing here is that God has a purpose. God has a plan. And really, according to Ephesians 3.11, it's an eternal purpose. And if you remember a little bit or anything about what we've been talking about over the last three months, you can see why it's an eternal purpose. Because this eternal purpose started in eternity past, before Adam and Eve even, with Lucifer, right, in the garden. And sons of God worshiping and glorifying him. And it was transferred to Adam and to Noah and on and on of Israel and the church. And we talked them all about that. But he says it's an eternal purpose from the past, eternity past all the way into eternity future. And he even references in verse 10 of chapter 3 principalities and powers in heavenly places. And again, that shouldn't surprise us because essentially the purpose that was for them is now for us. It's almost like it's in their face, if you will. And that purpose, again, is for this planet to be inhabited by a race of beings called what? The sons of God, uh, who will do something very specific, who will magnify and worship and love and glorify him as the name that is above every name. And again, we saw that back in the garden and, and all through uh, the Bible there. And it's going to go into the millennium, y'all, when Jesus Christ is ruling over race of beings called the sons of God. And that's why, look again in Ephesians 3, down in verse 20. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, praise the Lord for that, according to the power that worketh in us, verse 21, unto him. Him. Not unto you, Robert. Unto him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That is the purpose of the church. To bring him, as sons of God, to bring him glory. In, as Whether we're gathered or dispersed or in and out or whatever we're doing. Alone or with people. To be, equipping our, be equipped ourselves or by others in discipleship. And in gatherings like this, to, to go out and make sons of God, to, to find those sons of God, maybe who are weak in their faith and need to be strengthened, to find those who are not sons of God and are, are sons of their father, the devil, and they need to be saved and to strengthen them up in the faith and to send them out to do the same. The, the work of the ministry, that is the purpose of the church. And in doing that, we are bringing him glory and producing fruit, as he says in John 15, that abideth. And that's so important that we get because if not, if we don't have a purpose at one, yeah. and we do, but if we, and it's this, but if we don't, if you don't have a purpose for yourself, if you don't, if you don't have a purpose uh, for your life, for your family, you'll find one. Mm -hmm. You'll make one. Yep. You'll, you'll get a cause. And oftentimes that purpose will be S-E-L-F. Mm -hmm. it, it'll revolve around self somehow. It may look good. It, it may have a spiritual slant on it. And, and so this church, y'all, was a church that was fully purposed. They got it. Okay. Now, why was this church fully purposed? Why? Okay, we get it. It, was, it, was full, it means fully purposed. Um, 
Okay, we, we see the purpose, but why? This was a church that was directly and indirectly influenced by the very apostles themselves. Think about the time frame they were in, right? 90, <clears throat> 90 AD to 200 AD. I, I mean, these, these men were still around, many of them, for a lot of this time period. And so, so they were... That they were heavily influencing, that they were doing the work of the Lord. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that uh, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And this church was, man, like if you're thinking of a building, like there's the foundation and then the lobby, Ephesus. Like it's just right there. And this church, uh, this will be a blank. I didn't put any blanks in your notes, as you can tell. Um, I, I led a different approach this week to, to let you, again, kind of write how you feel led. But uh, this church would have been directly and closely influenced, number one, by the teaching of the apostles. By the teaching of the apostles. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says that they continued stead. Fastly, steadfastly in the doctrines, or excuse me, the apostles' doctrine. A Hebrew chapter 2 and verse 3, speaking of so great a salvation that we have, watch it, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, yeah, amen, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So, so look at that close, intimate relationship. That they had there, that, that influence that they had in the teaching of the apostles. Do you remember the promise that Jesus made to his disciples or his apostles uh, in John 14, verses 25 and 26? He says, these things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. I I'm here for now. And then he says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So to, to, to this group of men, he's saying, listen, when you go out and you do what I'm telling you to do, don't worry about forgetting stuff and trying to remember stuff. And what's that thing Jesus said to us that one day on the boat? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is going to come, or the Holy Ghost is going to come and bring to your mind remembrance of all things. These are the same apostles that Jesus sat with uh, in Luke chapter 24, verses 30 through 32. Uh, we've referenced these verses uh, quite a few times uh, in our study previously. But after he is uh, resurrected, and man, they don't even recognize him. <laughs> and they spent three and a half years with him, right? But, but he's resurrected. And, and verse 31, it says that as, as they took bread in verse 30, and he blessed it and broke it, he gave it to them. And then it says in verse 31, and then their eyes were opened. Their eyes were open, and they knew him. They didn't recognize him before. They knew him. And then he vanished out of their sight. And verse 32 says, they said to one another, hey, didn't our hearts burn within us? Like when he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. And I just want to preach on this for a second. Man, I hope that when you read the scriptures, and I hope that when you hear the scriptures, that your heart burns. Like, not from the dinner that you had, but like, it just, man, I'm just, I love the Lord that much more than when I, when I sat down with him. That's, that's cool right there. Go God. Man, that's awesome. 
that their hearts burned, and he opened the scriptures to them. And then a few verses down later in verse 45, again, uh, it says, Then opened he, Jesus, there, the disciples, understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Right? Imagine the discipleship ministry at One Baptist Church, and we're trying to fit people. Jim is trying to fit people together. And I'm, I, I'm like, man, Jim, I need someone to disciple me. I said, okay, Robert, I have this guy. And the guy that discipled him was Jesus. Yes, please. That's all I need to know. I mean, like, this was the impact, the influence that these men had on those that they taught and that they invested into. And, and by God's grace, God can use you if you're not involved in discipleship. To, to, to pour into someone else, to, to invest into their lives. But Peter confirms the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, when he says, no, no, we, we didn't follow cunningly uh, devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Referring to that, that experience on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew uh, 17. But were I witnesses of his majesty we saw it we, we breathed it in we were there in the trenches and these were the men that poured into those in the Ephesus church that's cool and, and man they, they were and, and our brothers and sisters in that Ephesus church they were directly and then as time went on uh, indirectly because you know, Peter's discipling someone and, and taking someone by the way, and then and then that someone takes someone else, and so it just as it should, it goes on and on. Second Timothy two two. But number two, not only would this church have been impacted uh, directly and indirectly by, by the teaching, but by the example of the apostles, and, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. Not just because it's the last thing on your notes. I notice I left some space there. Whenever you see space on the notes, you know that means, like, I'm going to talk for a minute. So, like, you know, fill it in however you want. But the example of the apostles, and when I, when I think of, of these, this, I'm right now, I'm using disciples and apostles interchangeably, but I'm, I'm talking about that group that Jesus walked with. Disciples then called apostles when they were sent. But the example, I keep doing that, sorry, bro. The example that, that they... Exhibited was one of, I'm getting ready to use a word that you might not like, surrender. It was an example of surrender. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Man, I'm about to get convicted. Mark chapter 1, look at verse 16. I want you to see, even if you know it, I want you to see what happens here when Jesus calls his disciples for the first time. Yeah. Mark 1, verse 16. Now as he walked, Jesus, by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, in verse 17, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers, of men. Verse 18, and straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. 
And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and, or who also were the ship, mending their nets, and straightway he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the ship with the higher servants and went after him. Listen closely, y'all. Jesus is coming and he's saying, come after me. He's looking for men. He's looking for women. He's looking for people to come after him. Now, these, these are the disciples here, so he's looking for men in this context. But I want you to notice back in verse 18, man, straightway. And I love that the Bible uses this word. Yeah. They forsook their nets. They immediately forsook everything that represented security, everything that represented income, everything that represented self-sufficiency, everything that represented security, Took it, man. Straightway. No questions asked, Jesus. Yes, Lord, yes. To your will and to your way. And then so Jesus goes on. He's collected a few for his group. And in verse 20, he straightway calls some other guys. And they didn't just leave their nest. They left pops. They left their family. They left the people they loved to follow Jesus. And man, I know there are a ton of people who, who may not be able to relate to that, but I know there are a ton of people who can't. When I was in uh, student ministry, there were teenagers whom they were the only one. That 16-year-old girl was the only one in that house who loved Jesus. And she got a ride to youth group every week from a friend. And, and it probably felt like she had to leave her family, so to speak, just to love Jesus, to follow Jesus. And then there are some who, who literally, in countries where it's illegal to follow, to preach, to love Jesus, have to do the same in a very drastic way. But look, everything that they knew, everything that they worked for, they forsook it. And, and they didn't have to pray about it, y'all. Isn't it, isn't it odd that when we have a decision when, when serving self, that, man, we don't have to pray about that at all. Like, oh, new car, let me see how I can make it work. New house, let me make it work. Vacation, let me make it work. Uh, promotion, let me make it work. Like, anything that revolves around self, and I'm not knocking those things or people that have to, whatever, like, I do that. But, I mean, anything that's around self, we don't need to pray about it. We just make it work. But as soon as we're asked to sacrifice, to serve Jesus, we get spiritual. Yeah. Hey, can you, can, you, can you serve in the children's ministry? Just once a month rotation? I don't know. I want to. I just, let me pray about it. Can, can, you, can, can you help us with this offering for, for Haiti or for Malawi? I'll get back to you on that. And we get just this spiritual infusion, and we think we're doing what a favor by praying <laughs> and asking him, should we be obedient? Should we serve you, Lord? Right. Everything that they had, they, they, they gave it up. 
And this was the example that those in the Ephesus church period had. They had men like Paul in the Ephesus church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Did I put that here? Or no, I can't remember. I think I did. Listen to what Paul is saying here. In second, yeah, thank you, guys. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Uh, this is Paul's resume. Like, if he was looking for another job besides missionary, like, this might be some of the stuff you would see on it. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak of a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. It's, he's not talking about his little stripes that he's wearing. Physical stripes. In prisons more frequent, in deaths oft or often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice or three times was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen. In perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Don't you tell me, Joel Osteen, that Jesus will come and just make everything okay. The man that God used as a primary instrument, human instrument in your New Testament. That's what he boasted of. Would you still follow Jesus if you're sitting in a service, if a friend is witnessing to you that you're lost as a ball of tall grass, and you just get convicted of your sin, and you see yourself for who you are, you see God for who he is, and man, you're all on your board, you're primed and ready to receive the gospel and receive Christ. And then someone says, but you're going to have to get beat with a cat of nine tails. You're going to have to get shipwrecked. You're going to have to suffer perils, 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 perils. Would your Jesus still be worth it? Because Paul's Jesus was. And you know, he wasn't saying these things. He wasn't saying this to get pity. He wasn't saying this complaining. You know how? You know what his attitude was toward this? Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, he's writing to other, he's writing to the brethren. He says, finally, my brethren, what do those four words say? Rejoice in the Lord. And man, it wasn't like, all right, I'm in prison. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been abused. I've been betrayed. I've been mocked. I've been tried. I've been found guilty of crime that I hadn't done. Whatever, just rejoice in the Lord. Now, man, brothers, brothers, sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, uh, verse 4, or excuse me, verse 1, to write the same things to you, 
to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Skip down to verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to, in the next few verses to say all the things that he could boast of in the flesh. His accomplishments, his prestige, his power, his position. All these things in the law and as a Jew and a Pharisee. Uh, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost, and this is how you know he, he, he wasn't, he didn't feel like it was a lose-lose a situation. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The excellency. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And that stuff is just a big old pile of dung. That I might win Christ. And listen, this wasn't, stay in Philippians 3. Uh, I'm going to put some other passages up here and we can kind of compare them. This wasn't like a one-time deal. This wasn't an anomaly. Paul wasn't just having a good day when he said that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. It says, man, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down. But not destroyed. Stop right there. Look at the circumstances for a moment that Paul talks about in each of these four phases. Troubled. Perplexed. Persecuted. Cast down. Man, troubled on every side. Sometimes, Paul says, it feels like the walls are just closing in on us. Perplexed. Sometimes we just don't know what to do. Persecuted. Oppressed. And harassed with ill treatment, to say the, the least. Cast down, in other words, just absolutely chewed up and spit back out. And, and can I just say to you, or can I ask you, what do we typically do when this is happening in our lives? We pray. That's what we do. As we ought, we pray. But how do we pray? God, deliver me from this. God, take this junk out of my life. God, save me, rescue me. Please, please heal this and please stop that. Like that, that's often in Laodicea. I'm not saying our like that's definitely yours and mine. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But in the church today, that's our prayer. That's our, truly our heart's desire. God, just take this, this, this stuff out of my life, please. And we think, we think we're doing good because we're trusting God to deliver us and all of that. And I get it. I get it. I've, I've done that, right? Like, I think maybe at one point or another, we may have all been there. I get that. But do you know what this passage is telling us? That, that all that junk is, all this stuff. You know what verse 10 says it is? Look at it. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Surrender. The dying of the Lord Jesus. And that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Paul is defining that junk in our lives as the dying of the Lord Jesus. 
Do you know what is happening during those times of tribulation and those times of trial? Look back in your Bible, the Philippians chapter 3. Look at uh, verse, uh, verses 9 and 10. Paul says that his desire is to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And we're amen in this, yeah, that I may know him, yes, and the power of his resurrection, yes, and the fellowship of his suffering, <laughs> be made conformable unto his death, the dying of the Lord Jesus, and then the congregation gets silent. And the crickets are chirping. Because none of us want the dying of the Lord Jesus. None of us want the fellowship of his sufferings. None of us want to be made conformable unto his death. We want to take a toll road and bypass that and get to the power of his resurrection and the blessing. Jesus didn't do that. But we want it. And verse 10 says, look, he is always... Bearing about the dying. <laughs> Always bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because God has it out for you? Because God wants to destroy you? No. Look at the verse. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Whose life is it? Whose life ought to we be manifesting in our lives? Not ours. It's his. Listen, Jesus died to give us life. He doesn't want us, though, to in return live for him. He wants us to die so that he can live through us. That we essentially, as empty vessels and broken vessels, give him life. Yeah. That's what he's worthy of. He doesn't want our lives. Why would he want my life? He wants my flesh, my mind, my thoughts. No, those are sinful. He wants my pride? No. He doesn't want that. He wants an empty vessel, and he wants a dead vessel. So it's his thoughts, and his life, and his will, and his word, and his love that is being manifest through us. And that's the reason for all the trouble, for all the perplexing situations, the persecution being cast down. That's why he says we can go through all that stuff and not be distressed. We can be in despair but not feel forsaken. Why? Because we understand that there's a purpose for it. That these things are happening to bring us into a whole different type of fellowship with him. Yeah. I won't know him as the comforter unless I need comfort. Right. I might know him intellectually as that, but intimately and personally, right. yeah. I'm not going to know him as, as my sustainer. Unless he is sustaining me. And a lot of times, we don't need Jesus to sustain us because we're so self-sufficient in this day. Listen, it's not about trying. And, and, and I haven't deviated. This is all in my notes. So I'm just preaching right now. But we're, this is all the influence that Ephesus had. Okay, keep that in mind. But it's not about trying. What's it about? Take, take the TR off and put a D there. Stop trying so much to live for Jesus. I am about to go in a couple weeks to um, the West Coast, uh, not the country, <laughs> uh, Florida, and, and preach a youth camp for Douglasville. 
and, and this is what I'm going to be talking about. The theme there is alive, right? And we want to be alive in Christ, right? What does that look like? It's not about reading our Bible more, and, and though we should. It's not about praying more and stop sinning and, and give more to the church and all that stuff. That's worse, y'all. Like, those things have their place, but <laughs> it's not about just doing those things. Jesus isn't looking for us to do that stuff. He's looking for us to die to self. And then he can live through us. Uh, he, he, he must, I must decrease so he can increase. He must increase, John says. And then all those other things, they will follow. And, and that was the perspective that Paul had. And he said those things not on a hammock on Laguna Beach. He said them when he was in the thick of it. So, so, so the point being, that, listen, if you're glad that Jesus died for your sin, good, I am, I am too. Return the favor. No. Die. No. Just die. Die to yourself. Let him live through you. And, and that is what allows our flesh to be removed so Jesus can be seen. Look in verse 16, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. For which cause, he goes on, we faint not. We faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Right now, again, what God wants for us is, is to die. And he's bringing these circumstances in our lives for that reason. But even in the midst of those circumstances, we faint not. Why do we faint not? Our outward man may be perishing, but the inward is being renewed, made alive day by day. We are bearing about the marks of the dying of the Lord Jesus. He is living through us, and that's how he can give us glory. Look at the next verse. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17. For, look what he calls this. For our light affliction. Man, if, if I went through that stuff... Just a third of that stuff. I wouldn't call that a light affliction. But it says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, physical, but the things which are not seen, spiritual. For the things which are seen, physical, are temporal. and the th But the things which are not seen, spiritual, are eternal. And that perspective... That influence, that teaching, and that example is what those in the Ephesus church period had, y'all. No wonder they were fully purposed. Because of men like that, that poured into their lives, that lived, if you will, the Christian life, or died to live the Christian life. And again, I ask you, what about us? What if, what have we sacrificed? What have we listened? What have we given up to follow Jesus lately? I mean, have we had to sacrifice something lately? Have we had, had to give up anything? And I don't ask that condescendingly, assuming the answer is no. I'm just, I'm asking for your own inward uh, um, uh, evaluation. Yeah. What have we had to sacrifice for him? 
What have we given up? I'm afraid that our pursuit of Jesus, that our relationship of Jesus in Laodicea is more like those in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. It came to pass, as they went in the way, a certain man said unto Jesus, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And look what happens in verse 59. He just says, Jesus talked to someone else. We don't even get an answer from that first dude. Maybe he says that, maybe he didn't, but I have to believe in this conversation. If he's replied in any way, it would have been recorded. He just looked at Jesus you mean following me is going to mean you invading my space? That is what it's going to take? I don't know what to say to that. And so verse 59, he said to another, follow me, Jesus says. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another uh, also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell with your, uh, that home in my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Every time I read this passage, I can't help but notice that they call him Lord and then they call themselves Lord. I think Jesus has something to say about serving two masters. But he can't do that. He calls them Lord, and then he says, let me first. Lord means master, boss, right? First place. You're the Lord, but let me first, Lord. Let me go. Take care of my family. Mm -mm. No. So another one speaks up. <laughs> Noob. Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first just, I don't got to bury anyone. I don't got, let me just go tell, tell my family bye. No. No. Let me first. And how many times do we in Laodicea say, Lord, We would never, we would never dream of praying that. I know, but I think we live it sometimes. Let me first, Lord, and I think that's the example that Laodicea is doing. So those in the Ephesus church period, they had that example of surrender, y'all. Surrender. Not not trying more, not working harder, not praying longer, not reading more chapters a day. Again, those are well and good, and, and man, blessing will come when we're in prayer, when we're labor. The scripture says to labor in prayer. Yes. Labor in the work. Yes. But it's not about the works. If we're not applying it and dying to self and letting Jesus live through us. Okay. So, so there's that. But, but and this, there's not another blank on your page, but. They didn't just have the Ephesus church period, and we're going to tie a little bow here because we're about done. 
they didn't just have the example of teaching and of, uh, or excuse me, the, the, the impact of teaching and example uh, of surrender. They had the example of suffering and death from those first century apostles. And, and I'm not going to go through all 12 of them. Or the 11 minus Judas, the replacement, and Paul. Like, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to like just share a few with you if I can. These men that walked with Jesus, that, that it, it, uh, imparted and discipled the life of Christ into those of the Ephesus church period. James, the son of Zebedee, the man we just, one of the men we just read about in Mark chapter 1. A fisherman by occupation, Christ calls him to be disciple, so he abandons his livelihood to follow Christ. James goes on to become the first pastor in the Jerusalem church, and what they do is they put him in prison shortly after he was sentenced to death and executed with a sword in Jerusalem. But before he was executed, before he had his head cut off, there was a man by the name of Clemens Alexandrinus. Clemens Alexandrinus. And as James was being led to his place of martyrdom, his accuser, this man Alexandrinus, Alexandrinus, excuse me, was, was so moved and convicted by the conduct and the passion and the fervor of James that he quickly repented of his accusations and his persecutions. And he fell down at his feet professing himself to be a Christian and resolved that James would not have to earn the martyr's crown on his own. And at that day, they both were beheaded at the same time. Mm -hmm. What an example. Like, these are things you can read. I'm not just making this up. Uh, James the less, okay? So, so the other one, not the son of Zebedee, but man, he is no less. The unbelieving Jews that he was preaching to, they could not, could not bear his doctrine. And so he was summoned before judges, uh, and they compelled him, as you see many times in scripture with Peter, James, and John. They compelled him to deny that Jesus is the Christ, to force him to renounce the Son of God and the power of his resurrection. And the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. Catch this. They, they, they made a spectacle of him far above everyone else to get him to recant and to repent of his faith, as it were. And he stood there above the people. He, he confessed much more boldly and loudly that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and that he is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in the clouds of heaven to judge the quick and the dead. He would preach that, and so they cast him down from the temple, and when he got down, he did not die, so they stoned him. His legs had been broken, uh, but he was still Preaching, He was still praying. And do you know what he was praying when they were stoning him on his broken legs? Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He learned that somewhere. He learned that humility, that forgiveness somewhere. And so seeing this, one of the priests that were nearby tried to intervene and begged for the man's life. And saying, stop, why do ye continue? This just one is praying for us. Leave him alone. 
and there was someone in the bomb nearby who held uh, what you might know as a fuller's stick, or essentially a club, and just came up and struck him over the head with it, and he died. A a fuller's stick, or a fuller's club, a a fuller would be someone who would beat out the impurities of cotton and material, with a club. That was James, the example that he left for those in the Ephesus church period. There was Peter, who, who, while at Rome, was sentenced by Emperor Nero uh, to be crucified. And, and no doubt many of you have probably heard uh, that, that he so esteemed Christ as superior that he requested that he be crucified head downward instead of head upward. Because he knew that he was not worthy to even die the death of his Lord. And of course, his persecutors were more than willing to accommodate that request. Because, of course, it would increase the suffering. It would increase the pain. Can you imagine that? Dying for Jesus. But that's not enough. Increase my pain. Make it worse. There's a man by the name of Bartholomew, the disciple of Christ. Bartholomew stood before the king. And he was accused of perverting uh, a a brother just because he was preaching to him. Accused of perverting a brother, another man, and uh, disrupting or unsettling the worship of the gods of his country. And so he was threatened with death unless he would desist preaching Christ and start to sacrifice to the gods of his country. And his reply to the accusations was that he had not perverted but converted his brother. And that he had preached the true worship of God in his country. And he would rather seal his testimony with blood than deny his Lord. And so they put Bartholomew on a cross. And they flayed him. Do you know what that is? They skinned him alive. It's what you do to fish. They they skinned him alive. Just because he wouldn't give up on Jesus. And while he was doing that, man, he was still exhorting the people. And so they finally had to lop his head off with an axe. Shut that boy up. Mark. Mark was preaching Christ, and and he was captured. He was seized with hooks and with ropes uh, that were fastened uh, to the ground, or excuse me, around his body. And, And they drug him out of the city, out of the congregation, into the streets of the city. That his flesh would just skid across the road, man. And it got so bad that his blood was poured out all over the ground. And one observer writes that he was dragged very inhumanely through the streets. His whole body was torn open to the point that there was not a single spot on it that had not been opened. That did not bleed. And, and after that, they, they took him up. They thrust him, still alive, into prison, where overnight he was comforted by the Lord. And then they would take him out and do it again the next day. The example. I'm just going to share one more. Because I know the time. Andrew. And all of these, all of their stories need to be told. 
And I just picked a few, but I saved Andrew for last. Andrew uh, was threatened with crucifixion if he, if he didn't quit preaching Christ. And so he was sentenced to be crucified on a cross. But it was two pieces of wood that were the same length, where either end of each one would be in the ground, forming an X. And this would, of course, cause um, the death to be painful and slow. And to make it even slower, they didn't nail him to the cross. They just bound him with ropes. Because that would prolong the suffering. And, and Andrew said to the governor, this is recorded, friend, I'm going to quote you word for word. Andrew said to the governor, had I feared the death of the cross, I should not have preached the majesty and gloriousness of the cross of Christ. If I was afraid of that cross, I wouldn't have preached the cross of Christ in his majesty and glory. And one of the witnesses of the crucifixion wrote, and I'm quoting word for word. When Andrew saw the cross prepared, he neither changed countenance nor color. As the weakness of mortal man is wont to do or is prone to do, neither did his blood shrink, neither did he fail in his speech. His body fainted not, neither was his mind molested. His understanding did not fail him. But out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth did speak, and fervent charity did appear in his words. And here is what he said. O cross, most welcome and oft looked for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously I come to thee, being the disciple of him who did hang on thee. Because I have been always thy lover and have longed to embrace thee. What? What? And so Andrew hung on that cross for three days. But he did not stop telling people who gathered around and passed by the well of Christ. And so there was an appeal that was made for him to be taken off the cross. And word got back to Andrew that that appeal was in circulation. And he cried out to God. And I'm quoting. O Lord Jesus Christ, suffer not that thy servant who hangs here on the tree for thy name's sake be released. To dwell again among men. But receive me, O my Lord, my God, whom I have known, whom I have loved, to whom I cling, whom I desire to see, and in whom I am what I am. And with that, he, he gave up his spirit to the Lord. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to that. I have a question, though. If you knew before you received Christ that one of those things were going to happen to you, just because you were a Christian, just because you preached Jesus, would your Jesus still be worth it? I really, really think that is a question that Laodicea needs to consider. Would you still preach him? Would you still love him? Because you know the kind of death that's the hardest for us? 
in Galatians 2.20. It's the death of self. We honestly, we can't even get our heads wrapped around those people and the disciples and their commitment and their death because we haven't died to self. You can't get to that point of a physical death unless you die to self. You can't. Yet not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. And this was the influence, y'all. This was the example that those in the Ephesus church period had. They were fully purposed because of the teaching and the example of surrender and the example of suffering and death. Of those that were right there with them, right before them. And we're going to pray in just a moment and we're going to sing. We're going to sing a song. What's it called? Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. That's what we're about to sing. And I'm going to pray in just a moment, but just for next week. We're going to be in chapter 2, verse 2, and he says this. I, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst, thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. God says he commends them for their works, y'all. And listen. Listen. And, and you, you've listened. Thank you. But Listen. Can he offer that same commendation to us right now? And I'm not presuming the negative. I'm just, I'm just asking, could he do that? And we're going to see next week their works. We're going to see their labor, their patience, how and why they couldn't bear. They couldn't even bear it all. And he, he calls them evil. Who's evil? Those that they've tried to say that they're apostles and they're not. They're evil. They're liars. 